very good to be with you this morning. I'll have to give you the answer to the question that was just posed to us in that song. Yes, He is calling you. He is giving you an invitation. And as we sung in the song prior to that, it's through the wonderful grace of Jesus. He is calling each one of us to be His children, to be a part of His great and glorious kingdom that will last for eternity. I didn't ask Brent to lead those songs, but I appreciate him doing that. This morning, if you want to give the lesson a title, it would be Grace, a Divine Invitation. An invitation given to God, by God to each and every one of us to be His child. As we've been studying the book of Romans, if you look at the word usage, grace is used more in the book of Romans than any other book in the New Testament. And I guess that got me to thinking about what is God's role in our salvation. How does His grace fit in our salvation? And I believe when we have a good understanding of how it fits in our salvation, then we will have a lasting joy of our salvation. And we will have confidence in the God we serve. But when we misunderstand the role of grace, I believe it will lead us down a path that is far from closeness to God. And the joy of our salvation will be a distant memory, if a memory at all. Now David the king felt far from the joy of his salvation after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 12, he pled with God, he said, Restore in me, or restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. He lost track of where he was supposed to be. You know, when false doctrines invade our beliefs, things like unconditional election or irresistible gr grace, and we believe those, or when we use the grace of God as an excuse to sin, or somehow we justify our lack of service or diligence in service to God because we say, we're covered by grace. God's grace will cover me. I believe we are conditioning ourselves to complacency, to apathy, and eventually becoming lukewarm, if not worse. And we know that Christ does not want us to be lukewarm. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Very powerful language that God tells us, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if you're not all in, you're going the wrong way. You know, much like the Holy Spirit that Brother Van talked about a few weeks ago, there is much information, both in the Old and New Testaments, about the grace of God. It's a very broad subject, and I think sometimes that causes us to kind of get the deer in the headlights looking. How am I supposed to digest all this information? This morning, a single sermon, we cannot cover the vastness of God's grace. But I hope this morning I will provoke you to a deeper study of how grace plays a role in your salvation so that you can have confidence in that election and that you can have a joy of your salvation that will last for this entire life and on into eternity. 
Your eternal salvation is too important not to look into the grace of God and how it calls us to Him. In the King James Version of the Bible, of the more than 130 times that the word grace is used in the New Testament, all but once is translated from the Greek word charis, which is Strong's 5485. And Strong's defines this as the state of kindness or favor towards someone, often with a focus on the benefit given to the object of that grace. By extension, gift, benefit, credit, words of kindness and benefit, thanks, and blessing. This word is translated 130 times to grace and six times to favor. Other words that is translated are thank, thanks, pleasure, acceptable, benefit, gift, gracious, liberality, thanked, and thankworthy. If you would turn to Luke chapter 14, I'd like to look at this parable that Christ teaches of the Great Supper. I believe it accurately portrays God's grace that He has extended to mankind throughout the ages. Luke chapter 14, beginning of verse 16. It says, Then he, speaking of Christ, <coughs> said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready now. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I asked to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lamed and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. I believe as Christ teaches this parable, God is that certain man. And that great supper is an invitation to his kingdom. All mankind are those that have received a calling to that great supper. It's not because of anything that those people did. It's not of some great standing they had. But because of the grace of that certain man, because of the grace of God, that he has, that he has invited us to that supper. It's because of his love for us and his desire to have a relationship with us. Paul makes it clear in his writings to the churches that God's invitation into his kingdom is universal. We've seen that through a study of the book of Romans. It's not just for the Jews, it's not just for the Gentiles, but it's for all mankind. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. All men he wants to have a relationship with. 
But even though God's gift to join his kingdom is universal, just like those people that were invited to the supper, each one of us has a choice to accept that invitation or to reject it. And sadly, most people will reject that invitation. If you would now turn to Titus chapter 2, I'd like to begin in verse 11. We'll look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Here again, the Apostle Paul writing to another evangelist. The evangelist Titus in verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. The word appear means to become visible. It is known to all men. What does that grace do? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The grace of God in appearing to us, being known to us, teaches us what God requires from us to join him at the feast. Just as a formal invitation to a great supper would have the proper attire to be worn to that feast, be it business casual, suit and tie, khakis and a button-up, they would tell you what you need to wear. Grace teaches us that our attire to this feast is to put off the sinful works of the flesh, to put off the filthy rags of ungodliness and worldly lust, as he says here in Titus chapter 2. And we are to remove those sinful garments through repentance. And we are to be clothed in righteousness. The grace of God teaches us that. Verse 14 tells us that we are to be zealous of good works. That's what it should provoke in us, to be zealous to work for God because of the gift He has given us. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, to give us a little context, if we look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, we see that Paul is writing to the saints that are at Ephesus. So he's writing to the Christians that are in Christ there at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you, speaking to the Christians, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. We were all part of that sinful walk of life. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive again, alive together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And down in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Grace teaches us that we are unworthy of this love that has been shown to us by God. It teaches us that we could never come to God on our own account. We have to receive an invitation. And that invitation is through grace, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of worse, lest anyone should boast. We didn't ask for the invitation, the invitation was given to us, as it has been given to all mankind. You know, it calls to my mind the parable of the servant that was forgiven much in Matthew chapter 18. I remind you of the debt that he had on his account when he was brought before his master. I'm going to lean on Brother Matthew Miller's research, but I believe in his lesson he said that it was approximately 200,000 years wages that he owed. It was a debt that he could never repay, not in many, many lifetimes. But thankfully, verse 4 says, but God. God took the first step. He made a way back to Him. But, but, but God, because of His love for us, He chose to offer us mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because He's a merciful, loving God. By the invitation God extended to us through His grace, God gives us an opportunity to be made alive in Jesus Christ. God tells us how this is done in verse 8. He says, It is through faith, by grace, through faith. But what is the object of our faith? He tells us that in verse 13. It's the power of God in the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I remind you of Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, how he tells that these two, faith, faith and grace, work together in our salvation. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We contact that blood of Christ that is the object of our faith when we submit to God in baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 tells us that we are put into Christ when our faith causes us to be baptized into the death of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It was in, in Jesus' death that His blood was shed. The spear was pier pierced His side, and out came blood and water. We must submit to baptism. And when we do that, we show our faith in God's power to save us through His operation on us. And it is this blood that takes away those old garments of sin and allows us 
to put on that newness of life, to be clothed in righteousness. And it's up to us to put on new garments, to cast off those old garments, no longer pursue those things of the flesh, but to walk in that newness of life in pursuit of God. Paul restates this sentiment in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, ye became slaves to righteousness. What grace taught the Christians, they obeyed through faith. The grace of God and the faithful obedience of the Christian works together to bring us into Christ, to have a seat at the table of the feast with God. This walking in newness of life is a continual process. It's one in which we continually put off the old man, the sins of the flesh, the desires that we once had through repentance. And we put in their place Service to God, righteousness, holiness, purity. And we do that through obedience to His Word. The grace of God teaches us that this is our reasonable service. I remind you of the debt that has been forgiven us, not because we earned it, but because God extended His grace to us. It is the logical response for us to give our life to Him because of the great debt He has paid on our behalf. Remind you of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It only makes sense. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. We must never lose that humility that we had when we submitted to the gospel and acknowledging that it is only through Christ and the power of His blood that we can have a relationship with God. As long as we are in this flesh, we are going to be tempted. And there's going to be times that we're going to fall to that temptation. But our pursuit is not that gratifying of our flesh. But our pursuit is God and His holiness and His righteousness. Those garments that are we are to put on to come to the feast. Our pursuit is to bring glory to our Heavenly Father, the one that has given us everything. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-10 through 10 says, If I say that we have fellowship with Him... And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. If somehow we get to the point where we think we've got, it fit, we've got it licked, and we no longer have to fight against the flesh, and we no longer commit sin, He says we're worse than the Pharisees. 
God is not in us. We're walking in darkness because we're believing the lie that we've told ourselves that we're above sin. We need to realize that we all must walk in humility, knowing that it takes the blood of Christ daily to cleanse us and make us pure in the sight of God. I believe this is a pattern that God has used throughout time of teaching mankind by His grace and salvation coming when man obeys in faith what grace has taught. And we can see this over and over throughout Scripture that this is how God has chosen to deal with mankind. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, much like the New, the word grace that is translated that is translated to grace in the King James Version, all but once, it's the same word in the Hebrew. And it's Strong's H2580, heen. And it's defined by, by Strong's, once again, as favor and grace. And Strong's makes this point in its definition. To find grace in someone's eyes means to be in a state of favor. When we find grace... We're in the favor of that one that is having grace upon us. It's translated grace 38 times and favor 26 times in the Old Testament. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 6 and look for a moment at the story of Noah. If you would, in Genesis chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And in the next few verses, he tells them very specifically how he is to make that vessel that is going to be the saving of his household. And in verse 22 of, Noah, of Genesis chapter 6, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. I ask you a few questions about Noah. Was Noah completely free of sin? Did he earn God's grace? No, we're told very clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know later in his life, Noah became drunk and did some things he shouldn't do. We know that he was not completely free of sin. Because of that sin, his debt is just as ours is today. It's insurmountable. It's greater than he could ever pay. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We cannot pay that debt because it is too great. 
So did God want a relationship with anybody else other than Noah? Or was Noah the only one that the invitation to have a relationship with was granted? Now I believe God wanted a relationship with each and every person on the face of the earth then as he does now. I believe he did because he was grieved at what their actions were. They were not submitting to him. How was that invitation given to them in that time? The very same way it was given to us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was teaching those that they need to change their ways, that the grace of God was there if they would pursue it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, how are we going to escape? if we too have heard the saving news of God's grace. In the time of Noah, God extended His grace to mankind just as He has to done today through the teaching of His Word. And He did that to all mankind even though they were not deserving of it. But only Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord because they looked for it. They sought it. And they sought it through faithful obedience to what grace taught them. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He, didn't wor he worked for 100 years, but he didn't work for 200,000 years and earn his salvation. He did what God asked him to do. And through obedience to that faith, he was saved. The Apostle Paul uses this very same example of Noah and the ark and compares it to our response to, grace of God, to the grace of God, what it should be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, for, grace, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the, f in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and also in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and the people of Nineveh another example we find in the Old Testament were the Ninevites somehow deserving of God's grace had they done something or did they have some standing that warranted the mercy of God? 
No, God wanted a relationship with him. And he knew that in, the for, in order for him to have a relationship with sinful man, he had to make the first step. He had to extend his grace. And what was their response? When Jonah came and preached to them, in faithful obedience, they tore their clothes, clothes they put on sackcloth and ash, and they put off the, the sins of the flesh, and they pursued God. And their faithful obedience was counted to them for righteousness. What about you and me today? We have been shown the fullness of God's love and grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is our logical response to that grace today? Should we expect God to save us if we are unwilling to put off the sinful works of the flesh? If we are unwilling to repent of those deeds that are contrary to His Word, and we're unwilling to accept His grace through obedience to the gospel, do we have any reason to expect any, some other outcome other than those that were in the days of Noah that, were, that perished outside the ark of safety? The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just re reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How are we going to escape? We have all the evidence. We have all the proof and how God has dealt with mankind from the very beginning. Why do we think it would be any different with us today? This morning I hope that we can learn a few lessons from our study of grace. I hope you realize that grace has been extended to all mankind. There's not just a select few. There's just not a few elect that God predetermined before time began that I'm going to save you, but not you. But God's invitation has been given to all mankind. I hope you realize that grace teaches us that our debt of sin is far greater than we could ever repay on our own account. There's no way in a thousand lifetimes that we could ever do enough good to pay for the debt of sin. Grace teaches us how that we can come to God and receive His mercy and favor. And it's through faithful obedience to the gospel. Grace teaches us that we must turn away from pursuing sin and we must turn headed straight toward God and His righteousness. And we must put on the works of righteousness. Unless we have those garments that are fit for the feast, we will not be able to come to the feast. Hope we also realize that we can reject God's invitation, just as those that were bidden come to the feast. Not only can we do it before we come, before we obey the gospel, but we can reject God even after we become His children. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For if, 
after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. There's other, one other false doctrine I want to mention before we close this morning, and I believe it's very deceitful. And it's one that I've even heard members of the church say to one another. And it's somehow we use it to justify sin in our life. Brother Pat Manning mentioned it when he talked about Calvinism in his lesson a few months ago. When we determine that there are certain salvation doctrines in the Bible and that there's other doctrines of Christ or teachings of Christ that are not as important. And it goes something like this. Because these are salvation doctrines, things that I deem as important, then I'm going to do if it says to do it, and I'm not going to do it if it says not to. But there's other things that I don't think they're as bad. I don't think it's as big of a deal. And I believe the grace of God is going to cover me, so I'm going to continue to pursue that kind of whatever it is, whether it's in things of modesty, in, um, if it's in morality, if it's in how we worship, if it's in the organization of the church. There's certain things that I know God's commanded me to do it, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. So I'm going to let God's grace cover me no, I believe this is pride stepping in. And somehow we think our response to the grace of God is, should be different than what God has told us that He expects it to be in His Word. When we do this, I don't believe we're, we're, no, we're no longer walking in the light and pursuing God. We're saying, I have a better way than you, God. These things I'll keep, but these other things... I think I got a better way. We need to be careful that we don't allow our mind, that to be our mindset in the church. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful, fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. God's grace is sufficient to bring us to Him. His invitation is universal. Each one of us has an opportunity to come to the feast. But it's our choice whether or not we put off the sinful man and pursue God and clothe ourselves in righteousness and submit to Him in baptism. If you haven't put on Christ, if you haven't put on righteousness so that you can be a part of God's kingdom, there's no better time than the present to do that. If, you've been, if you have been like David and been deceived and gone, out, gone after sin once again and you want the prayers of the church so that, so that you can renew, have that new joy of your salvation again, if there's one of either class, please come forward. Make your request known and sit on the front seat as we stand and sing the song of invitation. <clears throat>